Thank you for listening to Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body. This is episode 55, Act 1, Shauna Melton, Calling in Your Why, recorded April 24th, 2022. Ooh, yeah, oh. I'm so damn tired of waiting on a perfect A plus B. The one size fits all prudent kids all screaming about irrevocability. Let's burn some bridges, earn some stitches, and fight our own way free. Cause the rules don't lie, but they don't apply to people like you and me. Let's start it up now. 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 Now they say it's all decided, all divided, all laid out. And the pushcart man with a three-part plan can't understand what you're shouting about. But when the past they plow, the lives allowed are the only roads you can see. Just remember who walls were built to fall for people like you and me. Let's start it up now. 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 Hey, hey, TA audience. Welcome to Teaching RSU Podcast. This podcast is research recorded and produced on the unceded lands, water, and air stewarded by the Canarsie and Muncie Lenape peoples in what is colonially known as Brooklyn, New York. Thanks for listening and thanks for being a part of our global community. Hey, hey, y'all. We have surpassed 30,000 listens. Thanks so much for choosing this indie podcast. We absolutely love and appreciate you. Help us get to 40,000 listens by inviting your peeps, colleagues, and friends to join our community and subscribe on SoundCloud, Apple Podcast, or Spotify. We can also be heard on any podcast player. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and head over to teachingrsg.org to access episodes, guest bios, our video series, merch, and so much more. I don't know about you, but this summer has felt like super long and also way too quick all at once. Is that, what's that about? Like, why is time for me seeming to fly past and yet I, I seriously am so determined to live in a pocket of slower pace to slow things down but then I like look up and I'm like what how is it already August <laughs> um, and so in this episode which was recorded in the spring we're talking about the, the re-emergence um, in the midst of the pandemic um, and at this point, like now in the summer, like reemerges meaning like, uh, you know, being more connected, uh, more, uh, doing more. Right. And by this point now, months later, it's the summer and I'm super in a mode and like reflection mode around all of the community events, working more frequently in the office or the theater and just making those personal connections on a social, personal level, professional level, um, seeing more theater. Like I saw a lot of theater this, this, this year. Um, and yeah, just essentially living in a, in a, what feels like a more plugged in kind of way. Um, and ultimately how that activity, that engagement 
impacts one's perception of time. Um, I feel like, you know, very early on in the pandemic when everything sort of shut down and slowed down in a different kind of way, but then also everything was so crazy and urgent. And then, you know, you'd be like, what, how did, how did six months go by? I feel like nothing, you know? So I still feel that sometimes, but I also feel like, wow, I've really taken time to like deepen and elongate. Um, anyway, I have no like real revelatory comments here. I'm just sort of acknowledging the multiple truths that I feel like I live in a blink and then poof, it's a new season. <laughs> Things also feel like they're you know, like moving in slow-mo and I want to, I want to, I'm searching for how to be super intentional about how A, I spend my time, B, with whom I spend that time. And um, that whom is also like when I'm spending time by myself and what that looks like. Um, rest is incredibly important, um, you know, and living as in a, in the healthiest way that you, that deems that you deem appropriate is also, I think helps with the, that concept and that perception of time. Um, but yeah, I'm just curious, like what's your perception of time and is that aligned with what you want? If yes, can you please share your secret? Um, but if no, like what steps can we take to move toward what we would like in terms of how we perceive time? All right. Well, thank you for joining my TED talk. Um, ooh, copyright issues. I don't know. Anyway, this episode is with Shauna Melton, a poet, a painter, a preservationist who comes from a very artistic family. And when Shauna speaks, I tell you this right now, just listen, you will learn, you will feel something deep inside of you will be stirred. And so I'm going to keep it that brief and let you get right to it. Here is episode 55, act one, Shauna Melton, calling in your why. Hi, Shauna. Hey. Welcome to Teaching Our Issue podcast. Super excited to have you here. Super excited to be here. <laughs> It's so colorful in your background. There's so much joy happening back there. It's all art. Yes, 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 yes. I love it. Um, yeah, so this is a podcast that celebrates artists like yourself, culture and equity. And um, I'm going to share with everybody how we met. But yeah, I'm, I immediately like I'm not joking like within minutes of you starting to talk when we first met I was like I'm gonna ask her to be on the podcast <laughs> so I'm really excited to learn more about you and your work and your journey um and why don't we start with a with a simple question one that I think is simple but probably has some loadedness to it is um how are you how are you uh doing and how are your loved ones doing I am good I am um, navigating whatever it means to go and in, back into the world um, <laughs> as, as much as I can, taking it in small doses to the best of my ability. It's interesting because, um, I don't know, sometimes I feel like, like I was saying earlier, it's like, it feels like it was a dream, like, because everybody seems to be okay but you know, you still know the numbers are real and 
and people are still struggling and you still have to be safe. So um, I'm just try trying to understand what that looks like in my own life. Um, but my family is okay. I have family in New Zealand and two of my cousins are recovering from COVID. Mm. So that's been interesting, just worrying about them. But for the most part, we're well. Yeah, we were we were both talking about how more active we've become in the last couple of weeks and how that can be draining from an energy perspective and diff so different. It's such a it's a transitional moment. Yeah, I think especially when you engage with people in a more spiritually connected way or a place of empathy, nothing ever feels basic. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a lot of energy absorption. Something that I'm I've uh I hear I'm hearing what you're saying about the empathy piece and just sort of being much more uh cognizant and aware of others and their and the and ourselves. <laughs> um and that expends a lot more energy than maybe we're used to or have done. And especially in recent years when you've been quarantined and in the house and trying to stay away. Now everybody has a sad story, <laughs> like everybody. So mm -hmm. a lot. There's a lot. Um, so all this beautiful art behind you, um, how do you identify as an artist? I'm a painter and a poet at the forefront of everything. That's the foundation of everything I do. Mm -hmm. um, I'm an art educator. So I go and teach workshops, facilitate workshops, I teach after school programs, I do lectures, panels, artist talks, I host a lot of things, events. And I'm a historical preservationist with the Marian Eliza Freeman Center. So I'm participating in preserving two of the remaining houses in a free black community here in Bridgeport. In the 1830s, there were, um, there was a, well, I still say is, a community in the south end of Bridgeport called Little Liberia, which means free land. And um, it was a part of the Underground Railroad. If you ever come to Bridgeport, the ferry that goes from Bridgeport into Long Island Sound, mm -hmm. that is part of the Underground Railroad. People would take canoes from Long Island into the back of Little Liberia. And when they were escaping slavery, they would. this was one of the places they would come for refuge. And um, we have these cottages that are also part of um, Little Liberia, but they've been um, modified over the last hundreds of years. Um, but the Freeman houses, Mary and Eliza Freeman houses are the only ones that have never been changed. Mm. And so the work of the Freeman Center is to preserve those houses, turn them into a museum and literacy center, Bridgeport, Connecticut has very low literacy levels. And so using that space as a way to increase um, literacy and educate people on history is the goal. There's also Walters AME, the public library. There's all these places that are connected to Little Liberia. If you've ever heard of Lewis Latimer, Latimer he lived here. He invented the fuse for the light bulb. He was a black man. and um, we're working on um, events and programming that will honor him. We had people here who own like whaling industries, um, real estate, 
The emperor of Haiti's nephew settled here and had a fabric company. There were, it was, it was all entrepreneurship. And Mary Freeman, which um, I think in 1839 is when these houses were built, but she was into real estate. And say, I'm just throwing out numbers, but say there were like 30 plots of land in Little Liberia, she would have owned 20 of those plots of land. And one of the ways people would um, earn money was to come from Bridgeport and go from city to city until they got to New York. Then they would stay there for months and then work and then to, um, come back city to city and come back home to Little Liberia. So they started to industrialize and built the railroad. So the Metro North train tracks that and the Amtrak train tracks that go from here, you know, indefinitely all the way up, but the train tracks that go through Bridgeport, they had to buy Mary Freeman out in order to build them. So in the 1830s, she was the second wealthiest person under P.T. Barnum, who created the um, Barnum and Bailey Circus. So it was a black woman <laughs> during slavery who was sitting on what we would consider now to be millions, but back then was a couple thousand. Um, but yeah, she was the wealthiest person in Bridgeport under P.T. Barnum. That's wild. I made that face when I heard it too. <laughs> wow. And it's crazy because like, even when I found out about the water, so my church is the Ma'afa and I wrote the Ma'afa production for two years. And that's a a production that talks about African people from slavery, from Africa through slavery, um, all the way up to now. So we'll discuss um, historical topics, we'll discuss current day issues, and it's a whole play, a production, but it's, it's, a, it's an experience is what we call it. And every year we go to the water to do a release of the ancestors. So we called them in to tell their story um, so then at the end of my alpha, we go to the water to release them, say prayers, flowers, drumming, just a celebration and a restoration of, you know, their energy. And every year we do that. And that's happened for at least close to 20 years now. Um, but nobody knew that that was the Underground Railroad. And so when I started learning this history, I was calling all the pastors, Pastor Ben, Pastor Renan, did y'all know? And nobody knew. Nobody knew until um, this work started. And it was interesting. Pastor D like, said, look at how they call us home. Because all that time, we never knew. And we were still praying there and doing drumming there and releasing the ancestors there. Um, so yeah, it's been a really enlightening and powerful experience and it also in a city where you know it's been abandoned because it was very much an industrial city and then jobs left and people left and it changed um so a lot of our young people don't learn how special this city is because a lot of those places haven't been honored um so when you start to learn about the history and what happened and that there was a free wealthy black community you know um, their perspective is so different by the time they finish learning, um, which is really a big part of my why for doing that work. Ooh, I like that. My part of my why. I'm curious now about your upbringing, where, where, where you grew up, um, uh, 
how arts were a part of your arts engagement was a part of your childhood, et cetera. I was born in Bridgeport. We lived in California for like four or five years and we moved back to be closer to the larger part of my family. My grandfather lived in California, but the majority of my family is from here. So we moved back, we lived in Norwalk for a while. Then my grand, my parents got divorced and we moved back to Bridgeport and I've lived here since. I went to college in Boston, but I even returned back here after. Um, arts in my life, my whole family is creative. My grandmother was a painter and she was a seamstress more so. She loved sewing. She made it, she could make anything into something different. <laughs> um, she did all the wedding dresses for my aunts and my my mom and she did curtains and dolls. He made me most of my dolls when I was a kid. She was a seamstress and all of my cousins are visual artists of some way, a lot of anime and singers and musicians. My uncle Taj, my aunt um, and uncle used to take me to all of my uncle con my uncle's concerts. My uncle is Taj Mahal, who's a blues musician. So I always grew up going to his concerts and shows and being backstage waiting for 10 million people to finish talking to him and I was always part of <laughs> that life and being able to um like be a witness of what it's like to be a performer through him for mm -hmm. sure my father's an artist he um he was not somebody who put his art out there all the time but he was exceptionally talented at it um and he was a football player that's where his real energy went um, so yeah, I've been around it and engaged in art my whole life. There's always somebody coming to my great grandmother's house with a guitar, doing some kind of music. Mm -hmm. um, there was always art in the house. My grandmother loved art. My great grandmother loved art. So I was always around visual arts. When I was 12, I stayed with my grandmother and forgot a poem I had written there. And she sent it off to a contest and I won. So that was my first publication when I was 13. Um, so it's always been encouraged and especially by her, it's always been encouraged um, for me to be this. <laughs> wonderful. And what did you study in college? English. I was an English major. And just I'm so curious about people who write um like what that first writing or that contest like you you were writing before that before you were 13 right so what what was the I don't know the draw to writing and, and specifically poetry it was never intentional mm. I was just, it's, I know that sounds strange. Like I used to always write in journals. When I was young, my, my parents went through a lot and arguing and carrying on. And I used to always write in journals. I used to get in trouble for saying way too much in my journals at school. My mother was like, did you just stop writing everything? <laughs> and like, I just, I just wrote everything. And even unintentionally, I still, a lot of people say I speak in rhyme. Like it's always been a part of, um, who I am. Like I posted an event, some photos from an event I did recently. 
And one of my old English teachers um, reflected in the comments about how I told her I was a poet. And like, I've never not, um, not written. I remember, I can say though, that when I had that poem published, it was the first time that I understood it wasn't just for me or like it could be for more than just me because it really was something I did for coping and healing and processing. Um, but it was never until then something I did for other people. Mm -hmm. So I don't remember not writing since I learned how. I even, I was one of those kids who practiced cursive for fun. Like, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm a nerd I, and I, it's always been that way. <laughs> um, I don't, I don't remember practicing cursive, but I definitely was like, I have to find my signature and I worked on my signature in grade, in grade school. And I still, it's the same signature I have. Like I finally figured it out. It's like, Oh, the Y will then loop back around and it'll cross the T. And so I had this like, swish thing but I I figured that out in like fifth grade <laughs> yeah it was somewhere around then for me too maybe fourth or fifth grade I was like I'm gonna I'm gonna master this and then it's crazy because you don't even use cursive nowadays I don't even know if they teach it anymore but I loved it I don't actually know if they do either but you know I I would have I had to write something recently and my hand was cramping I was like oh my gosh I don't write anymore my handwriting is awful awful it wasn't good to begin with but now it's just like a hot it's a hot screaming mess so um that's handwriting at least um yeah I'm just I'm yeah I love that you're that there's there was this encouragement that there's so much artistry amongst your family members and and um just drawing back on something that you said earlier about the ancestors calling you home when it came to that that um Juneteenth celebration that like Ma'afa yeah yeah that there's something there's something innately human and and potentially cultural about the the need to pour things out of ourselves right like I don't know I don't know if you would call yourself this but as you were you were talking I was like oh she she's she might be a griot well, I've said that about me. oh good but, I'm glad uh, I, I didn't want to I'm not walking around like I'm a griot but no I don't think most people are but the idea of like I like what you said like I I never knew I like I was always writing and then that realization of like my writing can be for others and not just for my own processing healing you know etc that that like what does that mean what like what did that shift do for you as you continue to grow in your skill sets and grow in your in in your writing there's this thing that happens when you create is like almost like you're not even there and then you come back and you're like, oh, that happened. Like there's a lot of times I'll read a poem and then I'll say, huh, I wrote that. Or I'll step back from a painting and say, wow, that, that happened. And it's because I sort of zone out and tap out. And it brings me into a place of reflection. And I think a lot about you know decisions and I pray a lot. There's a lot of things that happen, but I don't, I can't take full credit for the things that come out of me 
because mm -hmm. I have a core plan, but sometimes it doesn't even happen the way <laughs> I think it's going to happen. And then I look, look at it and I'm like, oh, all right, I can live with this. It's great. All right. But, um, you know, sometimes you're just a, a vessel for art to come through. You're not always, you know, it's not all about you. <laughs> not for me. It's not all about me. You know, like I was, I have a friend who was, um, just to what you were saying earlier, I have a friend who had cancer twice. And in the second time she had cancer, we, she had to go through, you know, the treatment radiation on, and we were on the phone and she was like, do you know why I have cancer again? And I was like, is this a trick question? Cause I, like, I don't know how to answer. She was like, no, do you know why I have it? Do you know why I have it again? And I was like, no, why? And she said, because I've been dealing with a whole lot of stuff and just letting it sit inside me. She said, what else was it going to become? Like, if you don't deal with your stuff, it has to become something. It's energy. It transforms. And mine is cancer. And I said, yeah, yeah. Like, I don't know if that's a scientific fact, but I do know that it feels kind of accurate because I know that when I'm stressed, my hair breaks off. <laughs> you know, I know that when I don't sleep, it physically hurts, especially over time. It's like when you're tired, you, it feels like an old creaky house. You know, there's stress and sadness and all those things have a physical impact on you. So I imagine living a life of different pains and different disappointments and, um, not having some outlet for them. It has to be painful too. It has to turn into something. Wow. Wow, yeah. Or earlier when you were talking about like sort of leaving your body when you're creating, I, I, can, I can connect with that. Um, I'm a performer and actor. Um, and uh, there are times when like, I'm in the middle of a performance and I, I'm, I don't know where I am <laughs> and I'm just going. And then somehow like I come back into my head and I'm like, Oh, did I miss my line? Oh no. You know what I mean? Because I, I just was in it. Um, that also happens for me when I swim, like I, you know, I've done 10 laps and then I've done another 10 and I didn't even realize it because I was somewhere else. Um, but I think that that, that, that point you're making like we have we have to keep out we have to put so our stuff uh, uh, elsewhere like we have to process I call myself an external processor which I think is why I have a podcast <laughs> as opposed to being you know a writer um or or some some other type of artist that um I have to sort of like how I process is like talking and having these kinds of conversations or, you know, being in community with others and, and that aren't necessarily recorded conversations, but just being able to like talk through things and getting them out and being honest about that. Um, whether it's in, from an emotional place or trying to process a, you know, an event that happened or a moment that happened, you know, these things, um, they can get bottled up and, you know, so I don't, I don't know if I agree with your friend specifically, but I can understand what, where that point of view is coming from. Yeah, yeah. I can see how she could come to that conclusion. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's a fact, but I know that everything that happens in my life has a physical impact on me. Mm -hmm. 
in some way, even if it's just to the where I'm tired and I don't want to deal with the world right now. <laughs> so I'm just going to lay here instead, you know? So it's, it's really being intentional about not holding things all the time. And like, I'm an only child. Well, I'm not anymore. I have a younger brother, but he's like half my age. But I grew up as the only child. And I didn't have like someone to turn. Can you believe our parents did that? Like, you know what I mean? Sometimes I, sometimes I think if I had someone to talk to more, there might be fewer poems. Like, you know what I mean? <laughs> I'm even, that's even something now, like everybody's like, you know, putting all this art on, on social media and putting things out there and talking and talking and talking. And I've always been so introspective. Like I'm a bootleg introvert. Like I'm an introvert, but I like to be in the world until I'm done being in the world. I like I can be in a room full of a thousand people and be very content because I'm on stage. You know what I mean? But if I had to be in the crowd, I'd be like, oh no, I got to get out of here. It's too much. <laughs> um, so, so it's like, I don't know. I call myself a bootleg introvert, but I do know that when I'm able to engage with um, people and have honest dialogue I feel really strong and better um and I always wonder if I didn't spend so much time alone as a child or you know like with without a sibling or somebody who really gets it um what that would look like as an adult for me mm -hmm. um because art is where I really get a lot of my feelings out it's colorful because I just want where I live to be really pretty. <laughs> you know what I mean? And then I'm able to communicate stories that are sometimes painful, that are sometimes just um, hopeful and energetic. Um, that's how I communicate. I'm really good at talking and engaging, but I'm very selective about where I leave my energy and how I leave it there, so. Ooh, can you talk more about that? Like, I, I, what do you mean? you're selective about how you use your energy and where you put it because every situation doesn't need your mouth in it Ooh, ooh, say that again for the people in the back <laughs> it doesn't every situation doesn't need your mouth or your voice or your ideas in it sometimes things have to play out sometimes all your um advice sometimes it is unsolicited and you don't have to say it sometimes people need to live through things and you need to know when I'm not going to watch you, you know, almost set yourself on fire, but I will be like, you know, let's see if she knows it's warm, <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and just sort of let people have grace to make mistakes and, and be there to help them if they need it or, or not choose not to, because you need to preserve yourself and decide where you want to put yourself and your energy and leave parts of yourself like everywhere doesn't deserve what you have to offer and that sounds that might sound arrogant at first but you know some places will exploit you some places will overwork you some places won't honor your work there's been places where I've taken my art back because I could see it's going to sit over a table with a bunch of people spitting and eating and that's just not the destiny for, <laughs> that I have in my from my work but if I see you know I want my work in museums and health places and places that will help people heal and restore and if it is in a place like a restaurant I want it to be somewhere that it's celebrated not just mm. thrown you know like I I treat 
my art like my children. I buy a car to fit my kids, <laughs> my paintings, the way people buy a car to fit their kids. I have an apartment that I have to maintain this space because I don't know where else I would live that they would fit. Like my brain works around my art the way other people's brain works around their children. So I have to make sure they're in safe places. I have to make sure that, you know, everybody's not gonna agree with you, but you can disagree and be respectful. You know what I mean? Like I have to be mindful of that. So even in my regular life, when I have conversations, there's some battles that just aren't yours. You know, there's some battles that are. There's some places that you should show your work. There's some places that aren't in alignment with your ethics and you can decline. All money ain't good money. All opportunities aren't good opportunities. Mm -hmm. So you just have to really evaluate things. Like I, my friend Eve calls himself a legacy artist and I've adopted that um, mentality of doing things that when you're no longer here, you can still be, have peace about having done it. You know what I mean? When people talk about what you did, it's something that you're, you're happy somewhere in heaven. Yeah, they're still talking about that. You know what I mean? Like you're building a legacy and sometimes you get it wrong. You don't know what people in behind the scenes are doing or who's aligned with what, like I get that. But if you can make your best educated decision based on facts that you know, and they're in alignment with what you believe and um, how you wanna help and what you wanna leave behind, I think that's important. So inside of this, I'm hearing um, boundaries, boundary setting. I'm hearing like understanding self-worth. Um, I'm, I'm also hearing lots of care, care for the, the artwork itself and for the life beyond after it's been created. So what is the, the whole life of, of that work of art and, and understanding where it needs to be valued and where it needs to be placed in order to be valued for what it is. Um, yeah, those, so those are some of the, the themes that I'm pulling out from what you just said. There are many more, I'm sure. One of my biggest fears, and it might be irrational, but um, I've seen it happen in real time is like my art will end up in a goodwill. You ever go to the goodwill and you see those big things of artwork? Somebody yeah. works so hard on those things. Yeah. Like <laughs> all this work I've done, you know, all these places I've exhibited, all these computer programs I've learned, all this paint I've bought, like all these things, all this time, like some paintings take so much time and all these ideas. And I just can't imagine all this stuff ending up in like a $5 goodwill bin because I'm dead and I didn't do the right thing. Like that's, <laughs> it's like, I even just thinking about it makes me sad. Like, because you want, you'd hope that there was more of a destiny for it. I do. This is the second time you said destiny and, and earlier you said legacy. I'm just pointing it out because I feel like there's something powerful about how you think how you're thinking about the trajectory of your work and how you're likening your work to children that's i've never i've never heard anybody talk about artwork like that i think that's amazing 
yeah i mean i mean i'm not hanging out with the right people but <laughs> no and when you say that i don't i i maybe i haven't either but i definitely it's the normal to me it's just how i i view them but i can see how that's true yeah so let, let's dig in a little bit further into <clears throat> into the different roles that you have in arts and culture um you named quite a few but when did you start working you know, in community or as a, as a community artist or a teaching artist? Cause you said you're also an arts educator. When did I start working in community? So I ran a poetry night pre, pre COVID, pre pandemic. We celebrated our 18 year anniversary the November before um, COVID happened. So now it would be, wow, it would be 20 years ago. I started an open mic called Lyrical Voices. And that was a huge, um, I didn't know when I started, but it was a huge move. Like I had people coming from all over the place, like Brooklyn, like Maryland, like Florida. Someone came from Mississippi, Canada. and to Bridgeport, right? And so it was something where not only did it bring this community together, but it brought people, artists, poets from outside the community um, into this one, which was really big and um, a lot of work, but we did a lot of outreach. We did a lot of like um, when there was Hurricane Sandy here, we did donations and food donations. And we, we I've always incorporated um, community service into my work. And then like, even before that, when I was doing events with other people like um, Jamal, we would do book drives for the charter schools. And, you know, we would do readings and it would raise money for programming. Like my friend Gil gave prom dresses to girls um, at the Carver Center in Norwalk. And every year we would perform for his events so that he could help, you know, get money and, and things like that for his programs. But that was years and years ago. Like we've always been consistently actively using art to sew in the community. Like I wouldn't know how to not do that <laughs> at this point. But I also, um, a lot of times you think you have to do those things like canned goods and you know, book donations and all these things. And those are all important. And I still do them. Like even recently I did a, um, with the program I work at now, we did a 600 bag donation of feminine hygiene products to, um, we gave a hundred bags to six churches and one, five churches and one community agency. So 600 women um, were gifted feminine hygiene products. And it was, they've implemented that program into their community closet to help with period poverty. Like there's always something happening, but I think just creating art spaces is a community service in itself too. You know what I mean? Even though we don't think about it that way, but it's a place to engage. I know a lot of people have said they would have been in trouble if they didn't have somewhere to go. And I've witnessed that because when I stopped Lyrical Voices, someone I really care about that came to my events ended up having, getting jumped, <laughs> um, just being out. And then 
later on, I brought it back and he was consistently present, you know, in that space. And so I know that it creates um, an outlet. It creates a safe space. It creates, um, like you said, places for people to discuss problems and issues and societal things and sometimes be corrected, right, <laughs> about um, the things that they're doing. And so I think that even though it's an arts event and it's a, you know, it's definitely something that is classy and, and beautiful. It's also something that communities need just to have um, an event, a, a safe, a safe space. I keep saying it, but that's what it is. It's an emotional and physical, for me, safe space. Some places aren't, some places don't do it, but it's, it's the energy you create, it's the expectations that you set, it's the things that you'll accept um, into that space that really dictate how it will be. And Lyrical Voices was definitely a very safe space for a lot of people to grow. There was a point where we had all these different poetry venues. So I was, I was hopping everywhere, just going to things, but then everything went flat for some reason there was just nothing happening so my my intention was to do it and then somebody would pick it up I wasn't even thinking it would be you know what I mean like let's get it going again and but then it ended up being mine and a lot of people that I expected weren't there and people from the community were there then the people I expected came and then they connected with them and then you know I was it expanded my reach and that you know, I've created events at like the Ozzie Davis Theater and the Schomburg. I did the poetry stage for the Harlem Book Fair. And I was doing um, programs at the New Yorican. And so it definitely showed me that I was capable of doing more in addition to that. But that was the main thing that I started curating on my own. Um, there was somebody helping me in the very beginning. And when she saw how much work it was, she's like, you know, this is yours. <laughs> and I said okay I, mean, I know and so I just I love lyrical voices the only reason I honestly stopped and I, I had planned that I it went from it went from being monthly to um it went from being yeah monthly to annually for the last um maybe five years of it is because I was losing sight of my own work like there were even people calling me like, do you know any poets who might be willing to perform? <laughs> you know what I mean? Or, yeah. You know any artists? And so the thing for me was really needing to create a balance in how much I was being a promoter and mm -hmm. how much I was honoring my own work. Mm -hmm. um, so I really needed to take the time to focus on my work, but not, and figure out ways to still be able to elevate those around me because I love doing that too but it, I just couldn't let it be at the expense of myself that, that's your boundary setting you, I, I'm I feel like we need to be learning from you but around that you know like I I, uh, I love it I just love it uh, and I'm curious like okay so I'm gonna I said this at the, right at the very beginning so I'm gonna um, help everybody know how we met um so I was invited by Susan Achen, um, who works at the National Association for States Arts Agencies, um, who and organizes these peer, does a lot of work, I'm sure, but was organizing 
peer um peer networking sort of um webinar series around work that um a document that precious blake had made around the teaching artist sampler so um precious was a guest on on our uh podcast um in in march so it was post those webinars um and she and i along with um nancy morgan and susan would get together frequently and start planning for these um, webinars and as that started to take shape it was important for us to have a moderated discussion around some of the determinants that she had uh, precious had pulled out from the the research and the findings across all 50 states and the agencies um and that we wanted to make sure we were uplifting teaching artists specifically as part of those conversations. And so we selected two states. Connecticut was one state. Hawaii was the other state. And then those um, art direct, art, arts education directors or managers or specialists were then asked to find, you know, a teaching artist who would be a good fit for this kind of conversation. And you were chosen. I'm not sure what happened on your end to ha- like how it was explained to you on, on your end. But the first time I met you the first time I met you was like one time before the actual talk I believe and there was there was just a way about you you came in you were like all sorts of prepared with lots of documentation I was like what's happening I love this I love everything so before we get further into that I just wanted would love for you to share whatever feels comfortable like what how did you how did you get connected to be a part of that event so Bonnie Koba who's the um, arts and education director. She's since retired, Um, but she is the arts and education director for the Connecticut Office of the Arts. And so in 2018, I became a Connecticut Arts Hero. They awarded me Connecticut Arts Hero in 2018 among a couple of other people. And from that point on, the Office of the Arts has drawn me into a lot of their programming and educational workshops and presentations, um, which has been really, really cool. And Bonnie is just so supportive of what I do and I've been really thankful. And so when when she asked me to do things, I'm just sure, yeah, I'll I'll just change everything. (laughs) And I'm so honored because that was such a big deal to represent Connecticut as a teaching artist. And then such a, you know, all of my friends our teaching artists, most of the people I spend time with are creatives. Um, and so I know that I'm talking about things that we all need heard. Um, so it was just really, it was a really impactful experience. Yeah. And so there was something that you talked about. I can't, I can't remember if it was in the planning meeting or if it was in the webinar itself but I thought this is a, this is the platform to have this conversation, which was about um, you've talked several times about healing and processing. And um, one of my questions on the, you know, on the interview agenda is like, what does this last two years mean to meant to you? And um, I'm just curious, you, you talked a lot about how in, um, in America we are not uh, very good at mourning or processing or dealing with nuance. <laughs> I'm saying that you didn't say that. I'm saying that. Um, 
And so I, I, you, you made a point about, you know, COVID and the fact that at this point now over 900,000 Americans have died from COVID. And so many of us have um, been super impacted in several ways around this, not just the, the sort of shutdown, but the actual disease itself and its effects. Um, and I have some family members who, who passed away from COVID. I definitely, I've had COVID. I, I have, I think, at least one symptom of low, long COVID that I only just started to think about recently. <laughs> like I realized like, oh, oh, that's a, oh, that's me. I'm, oh, like I, I literally just had this realization days ago. <laughs> um, and now I'm trying to process it, you know, and be like, oh, I'm, I'm impacted by this in a different way than I, I originally thought I was. So I was just curious if you would, wouldn't mind sharing more of, of what you were trying to convey in that moment around mourning and, and how we could actually, um, that art could be a vehicle. So for personal context, my grandmother passed away, um, 2016 I believe it was and I lost so many friends because I was grieving right and people don't know how to deal with you being sad and when you're the um quote unquote strong friend Mm -hmm. they expect you to just restore right away and I wasn't and it and if you had asked me at the time I would and if you asked me what was wrong I would have said my grandmother passed away but it was also that I lost my job. We had an 80 person layoff and I was included in the layoff. So I was grieving being displaced, right? And then I lost friends. I lost people who relied on me being the strong one, right? And so I was grieving friendships. And then within that year, my grandmother's sister passed away. My cousin Atulia, my cousin Leslie died of breast cancer. My grandfather on my paternal side passed away. There were so many deaths and I'm a poet. So it's always read at the funeral, Shana. And um, I got to where I had to be like, you know, I I can't, (laughs) because there was just so many. And I wasn't, there wasn't time to, literally it was like every other month there was another funeral and I wasn't having time to restore. And so if you would have asked me, I would have said, well, my grandmother passed away. But I had all these other things that I wasn't dealing with. And I went to a conference about grief um, here at Bethel AME. And one of the things they talked about was stacked grief, right? And so it's this happens and this happens and this happens, but you're only focused on that one huge event and you're not dealing with all the other things or you're not calling them other things because that one was so large but they're all valid, right? And they're all hard and sad. And you have to sort of acknowledge them, not even sort of, you have to acknowledge them to work through them. But if you don't, they're just sitting there, you know? And then dealing with it, dealing with it on your own because losing friends means now you're not sure who you can trust. Now you're not sure people can deal with how heavy it is. And I feel like I did a lot. I went to therapy and I was going through a lot of, you know, self-help and reading and prayer and church every Sunday, just because I it, something's got to be good right now. You know what I mean? Like, and I did the work to get a better understanding of what I was dealing with. And I was watching this show on Black Love and there was a, a couple, Kariga Bailey and Fee, his wife Fee or Faye. 
and they were talking about the um, death of their daughter. She was stillborn and they still carry her in their family because she was part of their family and they honored their grief and they honored who she is and they didn't act like it never happened. Mm -hmm. And he was saying how grief is love that has been, that has lost direction. Right. And I've heard different variations of that, but for some reason, when he said it, it clicked. So the grief isn't this stone or this pebble in your shoe or this elephant in the room that can't be dealt with. You actually love this person. Right. So if you didn't love them, you wouldn't be sad. You wouldn't be depressed. You wouldn't be grieving. This is love. And it doesn't have that person to go to. So now what do you do with it? But I think until then, I looked at it as a burden, as this horrible thing that's happening to me and I can't control it. But when I thought about it as love, I said, okay, so now I can, I can, this is something other people would want. You know, this is something other people can do. And I, I really had to go through a lot of work. And then I know from witnessing and experiencing other people deal with grief, because once you, it's like when you get a car, nobody has it. And then all of a sudden, once you have it, you see it everywhere. Like that's the same. <laughs> like you start seeing how many people are grieving around you and how many people deal with that quietly and how many of them have felt shame, right? When you start to learn about death in other cultures, like I have a friend who's Polynesian and they go to the funeral home every day and they sit with their family and they say prayers and they have rituals. You know, I, there's people in Asia and they do all kinds of rituals and traditions. In America, we have we have our own traditions, but they're very quick. You know mm. what I mean? Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's definitely a send off. You know, and we're not comfortable with death. We fear death. Where I think a lot of other cultures look at it as another realm or another you know another place to exist. Not to say that they don't grieve, but they have different ways of processing it instead mm -hmm. of rushing through it I think there's less less shame it seems because we're always this where our country is known for okay what's next let's get it done let's hurry up let's get work done let's go let's go let's go but honoring our feelings and honoring our grief is so important and I really think that time prepared me for COVID for pandemic world where so many people are grieving in such unexpected ways and these conversations that I hear, they're not as foreign or surprising to me as they would have been before I did the work. Mm -hmm. um, so going into classrooms, like in the conversation we were having, we're going into classrooms, we're going into workshops, we're going into um, community spaces, and you don't know who's lost somebody from COVID. You don't know who's lost somebody to depression. You know, I know a few people who's lost their children to suicide because of the way the world is. There's so many things that you're going in not knowing. And I feel like as teaching artists, especially because many of us aren't, we haven't studied psychology. You know what I mean? A lot of times we studied the art and education is a difference. So you're going into these classrooms and you don't know these kids on a daily basis. You don't know these people on a daily basis or what they're going through. So we need some kind of preparation for going into these spaces now and presenting art. You know, when, when HIV AIDS was at its heights, they had the AIDS quilt. 
and each patch represented a different person who died. When September 11th happened, they have the monument now where the buildings used to be with mm -hmm. all the names. So what does COVID look like on a creative standpoint? How do we honor those people? How do we honor this time? How do we create work around this time and go into these spaces as teaching artists and do it in a healthy, productive way for the people in the room, but also for yourself? because it's 25 to one very, very often. So you're taking on a lot of energy and you're also conjuring up a lot of it. Um, so I don't, I don't know what it looks like. That was my question is like, what can we do to prepare teaching artists to deal with whatever creativity, whatever art needs to be put in place um, to commemorate? or remember or honor the, the loss or the depth even of what we're trying to survive, what we're surviving. Thank you for listening to episode 55, act one of Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body, Shauna Melton, calling in your why. Join us next time for act two. This podcast is edited and produced by Ben Weber. Christopher Totten is the director of creative content. Jono Waldman wrote and performed the theme song. Tim Palin designed the logo. Visit us at www.teachingartistry.org and head to the pod shop at the top of the page for merch. Twitter us at TA underscore artistry, the gram at teaching artistry with CJB. And now on YouTube, check out the Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body channel and watch We Can't Go Back. Like our page on Facebook, listen to us on SoundCloud and Spotify, subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts, and be sure to share this podcast with the teaching artists in your life. Let's start it up now. Let's start it up now. Ooh.